to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, one of the really interesting things about our current economic situation is that we basically have a recession that's been induced by policy, albeit not necessarily economic policy, but by policy in general. This fact makes understanding this moment in the economy very uh, bizarre. It's not like anything that uh, we've ever seen before, in part because of exactly what you just identified, which is that a lot of uh, the slowdown that we've seen in economic uh, activity was completely by design. And it's hard to think of any previous comparison that really works as an analogy. Yeah, exactly. So Along with this policy-induced recession, we also have the fact that the economic contraction has been much, much stronger or starker than we've seen in recent years. Like I think plenty of people have pointed out at this point that it's probably the biggest stop to economic activity that we've seen either since World War II or the Great Depression, so eclipsing the Great Financial Crisis of 2008. Definitely. But the other thing that goes along with that, and I guess this is what we're going to talk about, is because so much of the slowdown was by design, and obviously it wasn't all uh, done by um, law. I mean, people naturally changed their behavior in response to the virus, but so many policy changes were by design to uh, slow the spread of the virus. We also saw a sort of near real-time policy response to that because leaders or policymakers sort of recognizing that they're going to tell people to stay home, they're going to tell people to not travel and so forth, then the economy uh, automatically along with that needs a lot of support. Right. Well, we can argue whether or not central banks were sort of the grown-ups in the policy room uh, in this particular instance, but you're right. We are going to talk about the central bank policy response on this particular episode, and we have the perfect person to do it, uh, someone who's been on All Thoughts before, actually, the economic advisor and head of research over at the Bank for International Settlements, Hyun Sung Shin. Uh, Hyun, thank you so much for coming on again. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Joe. It's good to be back. Um, and thanks for the invitation. So I should just mention that a lot of this conversation is pegged to the most recent report um, out of the BIS that really describes both the depth of the economic contraction that we've seen in recent months and, and also the policy response. Um, if you just sum up uh, 2020 from a policy perspective, what's, um, what has struck you the most? What stood out? Oh boy. Um, well, you know, it's um, it's a defining moment for the global economy, Tracy. I think it's uh, we've never seen anything like it. It's uh, you know three big shocks rolled into one. I mean, first of all, uh, let's not forget it's uh, it's a health crisis. It is a pandemic. Um, and then, as you said, um, there was also the economic sudden stop uh, that was partly induced by the lockdowns, but. Also, it uh, also arises from the changes in, in the way that people behave. Um, and then uh, on top of all that, we had the, the acute uh, form of a financial crisis back, uh, you know, back in March when uh, the financial system basically froze up and, uh, uh, and, and the central banks had to really enter uh, to, to try and uh, unfreeze uh, the financial system. So obviously, one of the advantages, arguably, that policymakers had going into this crisis was that 
in the last crisis, uh, central bankers did a lot of innovation in terms of coming up with new policy tools to ease the strain on the financial system. How much did that help them being able to build upon the work of what was done in 2008 and 2009? And sort of what would you say were the, I guess, key policy innovations this time around that are brand new tools in the uh, toolkit that central bankers now can theoretically uh, reach back towards uh, if needed? Yeah, Joe, I think that's a very good question. I think one big difference between what happened this year and back in 2008 was, uh, you know, back in 2008, uh, the banking sector, the financial system was the epicenter of the crisis. And, the, the, and then the real economy suffered the aftershocks of the contraction and the, uh, uh, and the stress in the financial system. I think what's different this time around is that uh, the shock came from, uh, from outside the financial system. And what that meant was that the, the remedial measures also had to be somewhat different. Now, um, I think the, uh, the same set of tools that uh, we used in 2008, again, proved, you know, very useful. In, uh, and in fact, many of the, uh, the liquidity facilities were already on, uh, you know, on the shelf. And so we could just uh, dust those off and then, and then redeploy them. But I think the difference this time around is that because it's something that hits the real economy rather than something that hits the banking system, uh, there are fewer tools, if you like, to, to reach those um, at the receiving end, those at the acute receiving end of the crisis. So, for example, for the banking system, the central bank has direct levers of policy intervention when you get to the banking system. I mean, you can extend uh, liquidity to the banks. You can also use your authority as the supervisors. And, you know, there are, there are direct levers that you can use to, um, to alleviate the stress. Now, this time around, the people who were really at the sharp end were, you know, ordinary individuals and small businesses that suddenly saw their cash flow just, uh, just dry up. And, uh, you know, if you need groceries, if you need to have you know, urgent uh, central spending, it's not going to be enough to have the old tool. So I think what we needed to do this time around, what central banks uh, and also fiscal authorities needed to do this time around was to innovate uh, really beyond the tools that we had uh, in, in, the, in the great financial crisis. So this is a point that I actually wanted to discuss with you. So it, it feels like central banks are, are pretty good at solving liquidity problems, you know, they can extend um, short-term credit to sort of bridge uh, certain gaps between uh, revenue and expenses. But it also feels like central banks aren't necessarily that good at solving threats to solvency. And in the current crisis, arguably solvency is a bigger issue. So what's the challenge facing central banks when it comes to liquidity versus solvency? And, and what can they do on the latter? Yeah, and, and that's the really important question, Tracy. I think um, uh, what we can say is we're at the at the end of the acute phase. We're at the end of the liquidity phase. Uh, you know, back in March and early April, we did see a lot of stress in uh, in the financial markets. Less so in the banking sector, uh, because I think we uh, we did a lot uh, in the in the intervening years to strengthen the banks. Uh, but we did see market-based finance really freeze up, uh, and that's both in 
in the fixed income market, but also through market-based uh, intermediaries like the money market fund. The issue this time around is how do you get the financial resources to the people uh, really in need, uh, you know, at the at the acute uh, you know, end of the uh, of the shop. I think we uh, we saw quite a lot of ingenuity and uh, and imagination from the point of view of uh, fiscal authorities. The fiscal packages that have been unrolled. Uh, that have been unveiled have been really very large in historical context. I mean, just to give you an order of magnitude, the budgetary announcements in advanced economies is of the order of uh, 10% of GDP in the last few weeks. And then you add on top of that guarantees and funding schemes that are of a similar order of magnitude, so 10 to 12%. So just there, you have something like 22% of GDP from the, from the advanced economies. And uh, it's much smaller in the emerging markets. Uh, it's more like 3% uh, plus another 3% in the guarantees. And we can get to that later. But the issue has been how do you get the money to those in need quickest? And here I think we have seen uh, quite a bit of diversity. And you saw that one of the chapters in the report this year is about uh, the payment system and about uh, the role of the central bank in putting in place an efficient and cost-effective uh, payment system. I think what we did see is that those countries that had payment systems where you can get the money down the line to those in greatest need also did best in terms of you know, dispersing the, uh, the transfers uh, in the most efficient way. Now, we, as you said earlier, we are now um, at a phase where the initial liquidity uh, stress has, has passed. You know, we're looking ahead to potentially a period when uh, we will see a lot more failures of, uh, of businesses uh, and insolvencies. And I think here, the, you know, the limits of you know, just lending to tide over uh, a period of illiquidity, you know, clearly, uh, you know, we will go to the limits of that kind of uh, you know, role. Although having said that, um, you know, even for the fiscal support, what you need to do for that is to have a financial system that can uh, that can absorb uh, the the additional you know financing you know through the bond market for example through the through the government bond market that can support the extra spending to keep the financial system on an even keel you would need the central bank to play a pretty important smoothing role there as well so I think there is still a role for central banks uh, going forward but uh, the baton has to go over to the fiscal authorities much more. This is really a key thing. And we talk a lot about central bank independence and you hear that term a lot. And I think one of the things that I sense is that the, the meaning of that term has changed so that at one point it was like, OK, central banks aren't going to be beholden to political pressure and they can fight inflation, even if that's not popular. But I feel like lately that central bank independence mostly means a technocratic institution that could just move really fast while politicians debate things. So a central bank could turn a switch and implement a new policy. Politics just doesn't move at that speed. How much has the, the success of the central banks really been about that? Just the fact that not that they're doing unpopular things or that they're not beholden to political whims, but just the fact that they're designed to be sort of outside of day-to-day real-life electoral politics. One of the remarkable things this time around is how quickly the fiscal authorities have actually moved. I mean, if you think about the speed with which these fiscal packages were announced, 
it's uh, really unprecedented. And to that extent, I think this uh, difference in speed probably didn't hold this time around. Although, of course, you know, fits about uh, you know alleviating stress in the financial markets. Uh, clearly, put the central bank with the um, um, as um, a participant in the market itself can move much more quickly. But I think in terms of independence, the the key issue here is uh, that when the central bank plays a role in concert with the fiscal authorities. I think the key is that uh, the central bank is doing this in pursuit of its monetary policy mandate, uh, you know, rather than somehow subordinating monetary policy to, 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 you know, to other goals. I think independence is about, uh, you know, that issue. Like, are you subordinating your monetary policy goals to, to some other, to some other objective like, you know, fiscal, uh, you know, sustainability? And I think there, you know, we can think of independence in the broader context. And I mean, after all, we have to think about the central bank as a public institution that has to, uh, you know, ultimately have the to derive its authority uh, and you know legitimacy from you know from the electorate. As long as the the monetary policy mandate is clear uh, in the front of your mind, I think uh, the central bank should. Uh, display as much um, imagination and uh, and flexibility as it can. Uh, sorry, but just to back up for a second, can you maybe explain the difference between what central banks are currently doing when it comes to um, buying securities from the market versus what people call direct monetary financing? Yeah, so I think uh, um, you know there's a term, Tracy, called uh, fiscal dominance, which is the idea that monetary policy actions are subordinated to fiscal policy. So if you're, if you're somehow beholden to uh, a fiscal objective, and for example, if you were to uh, buy government bonds directly in the primary market, uh, you know, that could be a form of fiscal dominance. And indeed, many central banks are uh, prevented, you know, by the, uh, you know, by the laws that actually, you know, govern central banks. From engaging in um, in primary market financing like that, the dividing line gets a little bit more blurred when uh, you're intervening in the secondary market. So you're you are um, you know buying government bonds uh, in the open market, but then it becomes uh, a, you know more of a kind of technical distinction. I think the the important thing is the intention with which you you intervene. If it's to preserve, uh, for example, financial stability, make sure that the, the bond market is working well, uh, you are preventing very uh, you know, volatile changes in, in government bond yields. I mean, these are all uh, very much pursuant to your monetary policy objectives. The key thing is that uh, these interventions should be done uh, with a view towards uh, eventual you know, disengagement, eventual exit and be done in a temporary way. You know, in March, during the peak of the panic, of course, one way to characterize what happened was we saw essentially an entire run on the corporate system that's why there had to be this massive intervention. The dollar surged about 9% in the course of uh, two weeks between 
the 9th and the 23rd, which I imagine is probably one of the fastest, largest moves in history. As you say, we don't really know what's going to happen economically. Uh, we don't know if fiscal authorities will uh, do their part to keep uh, creditors alive uh, to the degree they need to. But did the actions that the central banks took, particularly the Fed and backstopping the corporate bond market, setting up these even more aggressive swap lines with other uh, central banks around the world, will those theoretically prevent us from seeing another similar uh, sort of like wholesale run on the system, regardless of what happens uh, with the trajectory of the economy? So I think what we saw in, in March was the was actually very different from what we saw in some respects in 2008. In 2008, we, we had the epicenter of the crisis around the banking system. And it was the uh, stress in the banking system and the deleveraging and the and the withdrawal of funding uh, um, it, between the you know interconnected parties that that, that really drove the stress then. And this time we saw uh, the stress very much in the in the market-based system, as you say. Uh, we saw it in the corporate bond market. We saw it in the market-based intermediaries, uh, for example, in the money market funds, because dollar funding is so central to the functioning of the global economy through dollar funding. It uh, also uh, spilled over to uh, to emerging markets and, and just dollar funding markets more generally. And um, what the Fed did back in March was, in a way, the classic um, the playbook where you you intervene, you provide liquidity against collateral, and also um, through the central bank swap lines uh, against the collateral uh, provided by other central banks, you alleviate the stress in the in the dollar funding market as well. So, you know, we've gone through that initial phase. I don't think we can rule out another you know, flare-up, but I think it seems that for the moment we have, uh, we have gone over that initial uh, acute phase. But I think we have learned some lessons this time around, for example, how uh, the dollar funding market and uh, the short-term funding market through, for example, the money market funds, through commercial paper, how that all interacts with... Um, the drawing of credit lines on the banking system, uh, they all interact. So I think we've, um, we've learned a lot. I think we, uh, we managed to sail through that initial period quite well. I think one thing that's uh, been quite uh, um, hopeful has been how resilient the emerging markets have been this time around. Uh, what we saw was that, that in spite of the initial very sharp uh, phase of, uh, of stress in March, Emerging markets have fared reasonably well. The um, emerging market, local currency bond markets have, have really come back quite strongly. I think it uh, is a testament to the, to the resilience that uh, emerging market authorities have also built up through both accumulation of reserves, but also weaning themselves off the dollar-based uh, instruments of the borrowing in dollars and uh, increasingly financing themselves through the local currency uh, sovereign bond issuance. And I think that's been, uh, I think, a you know, very good lesson to learn from this episode. I wanted to ask you about this, actually, because, um, you know, we have seen emerging markets sell a lot of debt in recent years, some in, in hard currency, i.e. US dollar denominated, and some in local currencies. And uh, there's a bit um, in the most recent BIS report where they talk about the idea that um, currency mismatches have basically been shifted from borrowers to lenders, i.e. 
to foreign investors. So considering the most recent experience um, and the economic crisis where we did have a lot of currency disruptions, do you think investors are going to be more reluctant to fund emerging markets going forward, especially if they don't get the same kinds of returns that they've grown used to in recent years? Yeah, I think uh, I think one thing we um, uh, we need to bear in mind is that in the sovereign bond market, so in the in the emerging market sovereign bonds uh, issuance, uh, around eighty percent of the issuance is in local currency. So in that respect, uh, we are well and truly past the uh, you know the era of original sin, so called, uh, which is the idea that emerging market borrowers, if they want to borrow from foreigners, have to borrow in hard currency. I think we're well and truly over that. Uh, what we've seen is that emerging market governments, at least, have been able to borrow uh, in domestic currency to the extent that you know eighty percent of the sovereign bond market is in is in local currency. Uh, what that doesn't uh, actually um, guarantee, though, is that the you know whoever buys local currency sovereign bonds will be able to you know hold on to them during periods of stress. Because during periods of stress, it may be that. Uh, for a portfolio manager that has a you know, portfolio of these emerging market bonds, other risk constraints may kick in. Uh, so if you have a diversified portfolio of, let's say, um, you know, corporate bonds and emerging market level currency bonds, uh, a period of stress will tighten conditions. You know, your own risk appetite will uh, diminish as well, uh, which means that uh, things that uh, you would previously had been happy to hold, uh, you would rather not hold at that point. And if that uh, occurs uh, simultaneously across a whole wave of investors, you could see a more concerted round of selling. And I think this is the kind of uh, dynamic that you know, we have to watch out for in that uh, although the emerging market government has uh, been able to borrow in domestic currency, the investors may be uh, dollar-based investors or euro-based investors, uh, other investors that have obligations uh, you know, to their policyholders or to uh, their beneficiaries in, in hard currency. And so unless you've somehow hedged beforehand when you've uh, gone into these emerging market um, local currency bonds, which typically uh, investors don't, you will have a currency mismatch you know, from the investor's point of view. And uh, Typically, this is the first, uh, you know, asset class that comes under, you know, selling pressure. So I think the the lesson here is it's not only enough just to borrow in the domestic currency. You really need to think about, you know, how you can develop a, you know, a deep and liquid uh, market where uh, the investors are also quite sticky. Now it has to be said that the investors, I think they, um, there has always been an element of, uh, you know, the cyclicality. And you know, during the height of the crisis back in March, uh, you know, there was some very good picking. I think that's when a lot of the investors came back in. The spreads are not back to where they were before uh, the March um, you know, stress episode. So there is still a little bit of a gap there. But I think the, the lesson here, I think, is uh, yes, you should, um, you know, you can, you can increase resilience by borrowing in a domestic currency. Uh, but the exchange rate matters a lot because the exchange rate does tend to, you know, amplify the gains and losses for the investors. And it's really the investors' behavior which uh, you really need to, you know, factor in uh, when you try and, uh, you know, look ahead to what might be happening in the market. 
you know, you talk about the the uh, liquidity demands on investors. I mean, that got so intense in March, and we we talked about this on some prior episodes that even uh, Treasury holders, holders of the safest uh, asset class of the entire world, even they got into a squeeze, particularly uh, relative value hedge funds. The Fed had to step in to provide liquidity to that market. Is that a situation that, in your view, will now that the Fed has gone there to uh, ease liquidity strains there, that that is the type of liquidity strain that's not likely to come up again now that we've seen what the Fed is um, willing to do? Yeah, I think the Fed's intervention in March was uh, was really important to to quell um, you know the stress in the Treasury market. Uh, you know, there was some specific. You know, structural issues uh, um, you know, back in March. I mean, there were these uh, relative value traders who were right. you know, quite important uh, doing the cash futures arbitrage. Uh, you know, there were shades of uh, LTCM uh, there as well, where if you're doing a relative value trade and the trade moves against you, then uh, then you're somehow forced to unwind, uh, which tends to widen the uh, the spread that you're uh, you know, that you're trading. Uh, what the Fed did was to go in and uh, and intervene directly uh, and purchase the uh, the traders directly. Uh, the dealers also had issues to do with uh, you know their balance sheet was uh, was already quite um, large. They had limited capacity to to absorb you know these sales. And on top of all this, uh, you know dollar was strengthening and emerging market uh, central banks were also uh, trying to you know secure dollar liquidity. And so there was some sell pressure. Coming from emerging market uh, uh, authorities as well, so it all came together back in March. I think we've uh, you know we've seen that uh, you know through the Fed's uh, intervention that that period passed. Um, I think we we also learned lessons on you know, some of the uh, you know, some of the pitfalls of uh, trying to you know trying to sustain these kind of you know, relative value trades uh, when when the spreads get very tight uh, and some of the potential. Um, some potential reversal that could come uh, when these things are unwound, but I think this is still something that we need to keep a close eye on. And um, uh, I think it's uh, you know, because the treasury market is, if you like, the the cornerstone of the um, of the financial markets more generally. It is the uh, benchmark security, after all. Uh, I think it's a very important uh, market to to be functioning well. So the BIS is often called the central banks. Bank. I'm just wondering, was there anything about the policy response that we've seen over the past few months that surprised you when it came to central banks? Uh, I suppose you know we could we could widen that question, Tracy. I you know let me just repeat the point that I made earlier that uh, this time round, uh, the really uh, welcome surprise was how quickly the fiscal authorities were able to move and. Uh, Able to put in place really very large, you know, fiscal packages uh, very quickly. It still took a little bit of uh, time for that money to reach uh, you know those most in need, and I think the payment system is very important for that. Uh, and central banks are really uh, you know quite um, poor to uh, keeping the payment system uh, you know working well. So I think the the central banks played a very important role in that too. Uh, but in general, given how unusual. And how unprecedented this uh, this crisis is, uh, I think we have to re- be you know using uh, our uh, you know the best you know forward looking analytical capacity that we have, 
and try and sort of figure things uh, things out, uh, you know, before they happen, uh, and try and anticipate things. Now, I think one thing that uh, is very important to say is, you know, initially people thought that this could be a V-shaped recovery, where you know this could be something like a a suspended animation where we can just uh, you know stop everything, stop the clock for a few weeks, and then come back. Um, clearly, that that wasn't the case, and I think it's uh, in retrospect that's. Not a surprise because the economy is not just an atomistic collection of individuals. It is, um, you know, think about all the relationships there between suppliers, customers, uh, the workers. Uh, think about even for one firm, all the history of um, these uh, very complex web of interconnections that actually sustain, uh, you know, the local economy. If you have a wave of failures uh, that destroy you know, the, these very complex web of uh, uh, interconnected relationships, you are actually destroying the, the fabric of, uh, you know, what makes the economy tick. And so I think from the very beginning, there was really, a, you know, imperative to make sure that as well as flattening the mortality of, uh, of uh, individuals, you really needed to flatten the mortality of firms as well, because you want to preserve those you know, those uh, um, complex web of interactions, interconnections, so that once you emerge from all this, you can then restart the economy on, you know, something like the old, uh, you know, set of relationships. Otherwise, right. you know, once you, you know, dissolve these relationships, you really are starting from, from square one. Because it takes such a long time to reestablish these, uh, you know, this web of relationships, you're going to take a very long time. So, uh, the speed of recovery is going to be um, uh, be that much slower. So I think the you know the task going forward is uh, you know uh, um, having preserved as much of the uh, social fabric as possible. There will come a time when 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 you really now then need to think about uh, you know which are the viable firms, which are the ones that that should go through an orderly uh, uh, you know process of bankruptcy, and you should do it in the. In, in a way when you can do it um, away from, uh, you know, stress situations where you're forced to uh, shut down viable firms. So I think that part still needs to be done. I think it's been a very good collaboration. It's been a very good collective effort, I would say, uh, uh, on the part of the authorities. Uh, it's not just central banks. Uh, you know, all the central banks do, do play a key role. Uh, you know, it's been a team effort with the fiscal authorities as well. I want to uh, ask you about something that uh, calls back to the last time we had you on the podcast, and that was about the centrality of the dollar and the dollar in global trade. And we talked about the sort of decade of dollar strength and uh, sluggish global trade. Hasn't been it prior to this crisis, wasn't a good decade largely for emerging markets. So far, we've seen obviously nothing that's really shaken the uh, sent the foundations of the dollar. And of course, we already talked about the huge flight to dollars in March. Has anything uh, that you've seen over the last few months, however, changed the long-term future story at all? Is there any reason to think that we've sown the seeds in some way for some sort of new currency or new trading order sort of in the medium to long term? 
I think the short answer is no, Joe. I think the um, uh, the thing to bear in mind is the the preeminence of the dollar uh, is not uh, just about the the strength of the United States. It's also about the fact that the uh, financial system, uh, you know, as well as the real economy, is uh, is a web of uh, you know contractual relationships, and a lot of those contracts are denominated in dollars, and so. Uh, what this sets up is a uh, is a collective action problem. It's a coordination problem where if everyone else is uh, uh, is uh, contracting in U.S. dollars, then you know you are are best off also following you know that convention. I mean, it is it is a coordination game in that respect, and so all parts of uh, both the financial system, real economy, trade financing. You know, they all mutually support each other in that respect. And I think, uh, you know, the, the actions of the Fed this time around with the swap arrangements and also the, the repo arrangements that the Fed has also uh, rolled out this time around called FEMA, uh, vis-a-vis the, um, uh, the central banks who, who post treasury collateral. I think these actions quell the, the dollar, um, you know, stress condition very early. I think, you know, reassures the users of dollars in that respect. Now, over the very, very long term, uh, I mean, there may be some uh, some shifts. I think this is uh, uh, where the historians have a lot to say. Um, you know, over mm-hmm. the centuries, you know, the, you know these uh, centrality of uh, you know, one currency over another, uh, they do change. But in the foreseeable future, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think uh, you know, still, uh, all the points point to the dollar continuing to play a very pivotal role. So, Hyun, one of the the upshots of everything that we've been talking about is basically not only will there be higher indebtedness um, for economies, but also that, you know, arguably with quasi MMT or, you know, more fiscal stimulus in general, there's going to be a, a tighter grip from governments and the public sector on the private economy. What does that mean going forward for economy is going forward. You basically anticipated my question. We were both thinking the same thing. I beat you to it. I'm so glad. It's a very good question. Uh, I think, you know, um, one one very interesting um, uh, fact, and uh, this is something that I mentioned earlier, one very interesting fact is that advanced economies have been able to roll out very large fiscal packages, both budgetary and in terms of funding and guarantees, 10% in terms of budgetary measures, another 12% in terms of funding and guarantees. So that's for the advanced economies. If you look at the emerging markets, it's been far smaller. Uh, the budgetary measures are on the order of 3% of GDP. And the guarantees and funding um, is more like 2 to 3%. I think it's interesting to, you know, to ask why uh, there is that difference. And you know, partly the incidence of uh, COVID-19, I mean, that uh, you know, was different in the early stages, although now, uh, you know, we see Latin America uh, being being hit very hard. So I don't think it's the you like the shock from uh, the pandemic itself. I think you have to search for uh, the reason in how much uh, the market is willing to absorb in terms of government that that has to come onto the market in order to finance spending. But the really uh, you know topical issue is can can central banks finance the fiscal expenditure through monetary financing? I think there, you know, from if we look at the emerging markets, and of course, emerging markets have a very long experience of this. When governments try to do this, when central banks try to use monetary financing 
in a very aggressive way. What you find is typically the exchange rate is going to be under a lot of pressure. And that makes sense because if you try and finance spending by taking on, uh, you know, through reserves, uh, so through deposits of commercial banks at the, at the central bank, and unless you're somehow remunerating those reserves, there's going to be a, a you know, portfolio shift where the commercial banks are not uh, you know, happy to, to hold these reserves. Um, you know, they will look for, for dollars. And, and what you see is a very sharp depreciation of the domestic currency. And when you have a very sharp depreciation like that, what you see is uh, you know, inflation picking up pretty quickly. So it's not the usual tradable uh, inflation where the exchange rate depreciation then leads to you know uh, more expensive uh, imports and so on. It's more that once you have a very sharp depreciation of the currency, it actually shapes the confidence in the monetary system, and and, and this leads to a a more generalized uh, you know pickup in uh, in uncertainty, uh, more generalized pickup in inflation, and this is typically how you know you would see this kind of episode of monetary financing uh, ending up uh, where. You have inflation picking up very, very fast. Knowing all this, knowing all this, the emerging markets tend to be very cautious about uh, pushing uh, monetary financing, and instead they they tend uh, to rely much more on uh, governments issuing government bonds and financing it through the you know through the conventional way. But now, if you try and do that, uh, the question is how much appetite is there in the markets? To absorb all this new issuance, and I think this is, and, and this is going back to our earlier discussion about uh, about original sin and uh, and about the appetite of global investors. Unless you have a very a large domestic investor base uh, are going to absorb uh, absorb all this, there's going to be a limited appetite. So I think what we can say is emerging markets know all of this. Uh, they've anticipated that there is a limited amount of fiscal space that they that they have. And although, um, uh, of course, they could use the money, they uh, they think that uh, you know discretion is the uh, is the more uh, you know prudent strategy, and this is what's what's holding them back. Now, I think for the advanced economies, uh, they clearly have a lot more space, and uh, if you're um, uh, a central bank that actually is the guardian of the reserve currency, then of course you have even more space. Uh, but I think in the end, I don't think that uh, um, there are no constraints whatsoever. I mean, there are constraints. It's just that uh, for the Fed, for example, those constraints are not really very visible. Uh, you know, at, at the uh, at the level of you know these kind, of, even as large as these expenditures are, they're not really something that's going to constrain the Fed. So, I mean, in the in the MMT discussion you have in the U.S., I find that discussion a little bit parochial, if I may say so, in that. It is very much a kind of a, a, a US-centric discussion, when in fact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Fed is not your typical central bank. I mean, the Fed is a very, very special central bank, uh, which issues the, you know, the preeminent, uh, you know, reserve currency in the world. And so it's always useful. And I would urge, uh, you know, my colleagues in the US to, to just cast an eye throughout history and through to the emerging markets, just to see you know what their experiences have been, and uh, you know there is a balance sheet uh, uh, constraint. It's a consolidated balance sheet constraint. Then you've got to think about the central bank and the government together. But it's still there. It's not that uh, you know it's it somehow sort of disappeared.
Well, it's a, let the record show that I didn't. I'm not the one who brought up uh, MMT on this episode. <laughs> whether there is a whether there's no constraint, whether the uh, wherever the constraint is, it does appear that rich countries, wealthy countries, do have some more space. Arguably, substantially more space. We don't know exactly where the line is. Regardless, they do have more space than they've used. And as you mentioned in uh, earlier on in the discussion. That it this probably the surprise has been the degree to which fiscal authorities moved extremely fast this time around. Do you think in the medium or short term that we're likely to see them push or explore the limits of that space? Or do you think that they'll sort of very quickly retreat to, okay, that was a one-off, we're not going to keep uh, doing this, and really we're going to let the task of macroeconomic stabilization go back to the monetary authority? I think that very much depends on how the the real economy evolves. Um, uh, I think if uh, all goes to plan um, and we do see a gradual recovery from here, I think uh, the the very aggressive fiscal intervention will have been a one-off. I think that's the good scenario, uh, and then we go uh, and then we can go back to something which is more like normal. Um, right. But if we see uh, a second wave, if we see the pandemic somehow sort of lingering and um, and wreaking uh, you know more damage, uh, then I think we may need to you know dip further into these other uh, you know these other policy tools. So that I think remains to be seen, and I just I think you know we just have to be prepared uh, for all these eventualities. Well, Hyun, it's always really great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Joe. It's uh, it's always. It's always a pleasure to join you again. Thank you. It was great. So, Joe, I know I was the one to bring up MMT in this episode, but I only did it because I was preempting your question. No, I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't going (laughs) to ask about MMT or anything like that, but I do think that they had question of, is this going to be a shift in terms of where fiscal policymakers feel they really have a yeah. responsibility to boost the economy, or will they quickly go back to saying, you know, that's the central bank's job? I think it's one of the biggest questions, period, in terms of thinking about what the economy and various asset classes will do uh, in the short and medium term. Yeah, I agree. I mean, also, one of the things that we're probably going to learn from this crisis is just how much more fiscal space yeah developed nations and specifically the U.S. have versus emerging markets, which is, you know, terrible and um, ironic at the same time, because emerging markets arguably need more monetary help to fight right. the coronavirus than, um, than than the U.S. Yeah, that is one of the perverse things, that there's no substitute in this crisis for spending a lot of money, uh, investing in, uh, well, A, spending money just so people can pay their bills, and B, uh, building out the infrastructure to fight the virus. And some countries have the resources to do it and uh, some don't. I guess that's always the case, but it really uh, is clear in a sort of fast-moving acute crisis, that gap. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, people within countries have been talking about the potential for the coronavirus to sort of accelerate inequality dynamics that were already present in society. And I have a feeling that we're probably going to see 
that same trend on a sort of international level. So inequality between emerging markets versus developed markets is just going to increase partially because of the um, the sort of dynamic with investors that Hyun was also describing. I do think, and it's something that we should keep exploring, that the uh, the length of time it takes us to return to something uh, resembling normal is going to be really important. Like, if in the U.S. it looks like unemployment is going to continue to trend down for a while, then we can just go back to mm -hmm. maybe the old ways. But if it, you know, if we're still here a year from now and unemployment is in the teens, then I think like that really raises the odds of like a you know potential for like radical policymakers, just radical policies, because I think the political pressure to do something about that would just get absolutely uh, immense the longer sustain the longer we have essentially depression level economic activity. Yeah, I think that's fair. So we'll uh, we'll reconvene in a year or so. Sounds good. To talk about this. Okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. And follow our guest on Twitter, Hyun Song Shin. He's at Hyun Song Shin. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. As well as all of the podcasts that we produce here at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.